0: out of slavery in Egypt by a series of mighty acts. Um, he's now brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai to tell them how they are to live as his special people. Um, in our passage tonight, the people of Israel are standing at the foot of the mountain as God has descended on it in glory with thick clouds, lightning, and fire. Um, the mountain is literally shaky. He clearly has their attention as he speaks. So we're going to read Exodus 21 through 3. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have, you shall have no other gods before me. This is going to make me sound like more uh, culture than I am, but I like to read David Brooks in the New York Times. He's, uh, he writes editorials in the New York Times. He's a great thinker and uh, he happens to be a Christian guy. But I was reading a David Brooks article last week on shame culture. Um, and uh, he, he was talking about this anthropologist named Ruth Benedict who observed that there's a distinction in culture between a guilt culture and a shame culture. We don't really understand shame cultures in America that much. We only know about shame and honor cultures from like Mulan. You know, like, like you'll bring honor to us all. you know. Um, but there are cultures where that are built on honor and shame. And there there are cultures that are built on guilt. The difference between a guilt culture and a shame culture is that in a guilt culture, you might feel bad or good based on what you do. So based on what your conscience tells you. In a shame culture, um, you are good or bad based on what your community says about you. Does that make sense? So community might welcome you in or send you out based on what you've done. And he says in a guilt culture, people sometimes feel they do bad things but in a shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel that they are bad, if that makes sense to you. So in a shame culture, there's a constant need to be affirmed in, the, in your community. And there's a constant fear of being excluded and pushed out. A perfect example of a shame culture is middle school girls on Instagram. Um, LAUGHTER they constantly like a girl. Like this is some of you guys still maybe, but definitely in middle school, where like you put a picture up on Instagram and immediately everyone in your tribe and your friend group in your community has to affirm it and like it right immediately. They have to put emojis. Emoji. They have to insult you with a compliment like, "Oh, I hate you because you're so beautiful." Um, and uh, and they and what will happen is if some, if somebody sort of behaves outside of the norm, then they will be shamed and sort of dismantled on social media, and some of you guys have felt that. Uh, Or if you watch Mean Girls, it's a great example of a shame shame culture. Um, But uh, on campus... That shame culture continues to sort of perpetuate, and it's especially bad on social media um, where we become fixated with who's in and who's out based on what they've done. You guys have probably seen someone make a very minor mistake or say something minorly wrong even on Facebook and be excluded, be pushed out, be shamed, be destroyed in a sense on, uh, on social media, and we become fixated on campus, I would argue, we, college campuses used to not care that much about moral judgments. It's just, you can do whatever you want but now we're very moral, very judgy. Um, in a lot of ways, we're like, and during March Madness, like the whole month beforehand is so annoying because all they talk about on ESPN is like, who are the last four in? Who are the last four out? Who's on the bubble, right? And we do that on campus. We're always thinking about who is on the bubble, who's in and who's out based on people's behavior and what they say on social media. And when we come to God's law, okay? The Ten Commandments. God coming and saying, this is how you need to live. This is how you need to behave. Since we live and move in that shame culture, I would say a lot, we are immediately start thinking, this is going to tell me who's in and who's out. Does that make sense? That the Ten Commandments are all, are all about getting into the Christian community or being outside of the Christian community. And I would argue that that is not what God's law is all about. And it's actually super misleading and we don't understand God's law at all when we're thinking about if you do these things, you're in, or if you don't do these things, you're out. And so what I want to do tonight, and you see there's a um, a little bit of an outline in your handout if you have one, Um, what I want to look at is what the law isn't, sort of break down misconceptions about what God's law is, what the Ten Commandments are, and then what, what God's law is. And then tonight all I want to do is look at the first commandment of the Ten. Okay, so what God's law isn't. I'm leaning a lot on some other preachers, Brian Habig, Sammy Rhodes, Brian Sorgenfry, just so I give them credit. But Brian Habig, I was listening to him speak. He's another preacher down in South Carolina. And he, he made this observation. He said, look, when God's people come to Mount Sinai, they've been rescued from Egypt, right? They were enslaved. God brings them out. He brings them to the foot of this mountain. When he gives his law, he really could have said a lot of things to them. Like he could have said... Here are a thousand and one things that you must do absolutely perfectly. And if you don't do them absolutely perfectly, I will blot you out from the face of the earth. Like God has the right to do that. He's God. He's the one that sets those norms. But look at what God says right at the beginning of your passage there. God spoke all these words saying what? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house Of slavery, Before God gives any of his commandments, before he says anything about how they need to live, he says, hey, I am your God. He reminds them who he is. I I am your God. You're my people. We have a relationship. We have a friendship. It's secure. He reminds them who he is. He reminds them what he's done. He said, I brought you out of Egypt. Do you remember me? I'm the one that cared for you. I rescued you. I crushed your enemies. I brought you out. I've sustained you. Before God tells them anything, About how they are to live. He says, I am your God. You belong to me. I I, I have intimate relationship with you. And here's what that means. That means that the law or obeying God or behaving as a Christian is not a way to get in with God. Okay? The law is not a way that that you get in with God, that you get into God's good graces. We don't earn a place in God's kingdom by our obedience. Now, a lot of you guys that grew up in Christian circles, you're like, yeah, I already know that. Um, But I'll I'll argue in a second that I'm I'm not sure that you actually do. Um, The law is not God saying to you, if you do these things, I will love you. The law is God saying to his people, I love you. I am committed to you. I am your God now. In light of that, this is how I want you to live. With Jesus, at REF, we we always say this thing like you're never so bad that you're beyond the need of the reach of God's grace. You're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. That everyone is welcome here. And the reason why we say that all the time and believe that is because with Jesus, belonging always comes before behaving. Does Does that make sense? Acceptance always comes before obedience. That's how it works. That might not be how it works in other um, clubs that you're in, that might be how it works in your classes. But with Jesus, acceptance always comes before obedience. And if you don't get that, if that doesn't begin to break into you, then you will totally miss everything that the Bible and Christianity is all about. Right now, we're in the middle of Holy Week. Okay, Holy Week is the week that leads up to Easter. Easter, of course, the celebration of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And on the Thursday of Holy Week, there's a really funny-sounding uh, day called Maundy Thursday. And Maundy Thursday is the, the sort of remembrance of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. On Thursday night, he eats the Passover meal with his disciples. That night, as he's praying, he is, he's betrayed, and on Friday, he's crucified. Okay, so Jesus is up in this room with his disciples. One of them is about to sell him for silver to murderers that are going to literally to to give him up to death. Most of the rest of them are going to deny him or run away from him. And yet in light of that, Jesus is with them in this room and he calls them his friends. He calls them his friends all the way to the very end, knowing full well that they don't really love him. They haven't really bought in in a real sense. And what the word mondi in Monday Thursday, it's not Monday, Thursday, by the way. It would be really confusing because you wouldn't know if it was Monday or Thursday. Um, but the word Monday actually refers to Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He says, you're my friends. Here, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to wash your feet even though you're about to hand me over to be killed in just a matter of hours. Jesus served them because his relationship with them was secure despite their disobedience. Does that make sense? Are you catching that? Jesus went to the cross for them, not because they behaved well. He went to the cross for them because, precisely because they didn't behave well, and he was committed to loving them. And that's how the gospel works. That's how the good news of Jesus works. Acceptance always comes before obedience. So here's what that means. If you're here and you're a Christian, that means that your keeping of God's commandments is not a litmus test of whether you're really a Christian or not. Okay. Your, how well you're stacking up against the law is not a test to show you, are you really a real Christian or not? And a lot of y'all's security, those of you that are Christians in the room, comes from how well you feel like you are obeying. So that when you're surprised when you keep sinning, Okay, like you do something that you thought you you wouldn't do, like you had never had sex, and then you met this guy or this girl, and then things happened, and then you sit with me, and you're like, "Well, who am I now?" Um, Because you think that your your identity as a Christian is based on your obedience and your standing with Jesus. If you hear nothing else all the time, you come to Ruf for the rest of your years. Know this: your standing with Jesus is based on Jesus's obedience to God and not your obedience. Your obedience doesn't get you in with God. And so my question for you is how do you determine who can be your friend? Um, How do you determine whether someone can be part of RUF or whether someone can be part of your fraternity or your sorority or your club or your intramural team or your circle of friends in your dorm? Um, If you are refusing to offer kindness or welcome because of someone's behavior or lifestyle, then I bet you believe that you think God requires you to be obedient before he will love you. Because it's leaking out onto everyone around you. That's not Jesus. But Jesus' acceptance always comes before obedience. So the question for us then is, if I don't have to obey to get in with God, if God already loves me, then why does the law even exist? Like, why is it even there? What is the law? Two things. First, the law is a response. Okay? Keeping the law is a response to what God has already done, namely saving you. Um, obedience is always a response. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Okay? Um, I used to smoke. Um, I smoked about a pack a day uh, for a time. And, um, and it was awesome. I looked super cool doing it every time. So um, I hate that you can't see that. I saw a terrible. Anyway, I'm listening. Um, but when I married my wife, uh, smoking had to go. Okay, this is here's what Sarah Jane didn't say. She didn't say you need to stop smoking, or else I'm going to stop loving you. If you don't stop, I'm going to leave. No, no, no. What she said was, I love you so much that I want you to be around. Like I want you to live a long life. I want you to live. I want to be near you. I I don't want the smell of cigarette smoke to come between us. I want us to be able to share our love together openly. And it was still hard and challenging. And it was a lot of work for me to quit smoking. It wasn't easy. But boy, did I have the motivation to do it. Not because I was afraid that she was going to leave me. Not because I felt like I had to earn her love or her trust. But because since I already had it, she was just saying, I want you to love me. And I had every motivation to do it. And I'm not saying that it always works that way. But this is what I'm saying. Love enables change. God's love to you in Jesus enables you to change and obey. It's a response to what God has already done. And this is really important. um, Because the motivation that God... like that God is going to leave you or be frustrated with you or disappointed with you will never actually lead you to obeying. Sometimes people get scared when you talk like this because they're like, now, first, if you tell them that God's gonna, still going to love them even when they aren't keeping the law, then they won't want to keep, keep the law. And the Bible is like, no. They'll never keep the law from their heart at the heart level and be changed unless they already know that I've done everything for them and accepted them. Um, Heart-level obedience comes from knowing that you are loved and accepted by Jesus. Uh, I love the hymn, Jesus Paid It All. You know, it says, Jesus paid it all, what? All to Him I owe. He's done everything for us, and now our life is a response of thanksgiving. And if you're finding, if you're a Christian, and again, I don't assume that everyone in here is, or everyone in here knows where they are, but if you're a Christian and you're finding the Christian life to be drudgery, Or like that sounds like the most awful thing that I would never want to do. Um, My guess would be that you're looking more at your behavior than you are at Jesus. Because the more we look at Jesus, the more that we find unconditional welcome that gives us the power to grow. Um, Are you trying to get to God by obeying? Like, are you trying to get to God that God will be? You know what? They finally got their life together. I will bless them. Or are you receiving from God? Look, this is how the law works. Either you use it to try to get to God and it kills you. Or you know that you're already in with God and it gives you life and freedom and joy. Because the second thing is, the first thing is that the the, the law is a response to God's love. But the second thing is that the law is the blueprint for the beautiful life. And this does not get said enough. There's two more passages on your sheet. If If you want to look at those real quick. The first is from Matthew 22. Jesus is talking to the, all these religious rulers. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And he said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Because they were going to try and find him and like kind of like get after him. He, was, he wasn't going to give a good enough answer. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. From Jesus' point of view, when he summarizes the law, at its most fundamental sense, what is the law? Love. Jesus says if you want to sum up what the law is into one word, it's love. It is a lifestyle. Of love, it's engaging in true love. That's why Paul says in Romans thirteen, it's right there under it. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you did everything perfectly like God asked, without love, and this is what Paul's point in First Corinthians, then it's worthless. It doesn't matter. Um, the law is the blueprint for living a life of beauty and love before God. Um. If you think about what God did, he brought them out of, out, of, out, of, out of Egypt, out of slavery, through all these mighty acts. And I feel like sometimes we think he did that just to curse them. Like Jesus endured being stapled to a cross and being abandoned by all his friends and the full wrath of God being poured out on him so that at the end of it he could go, well, now that we've taken care of that, I would like you to be miserable forever. I would like you to be an unhappy people that are beaten down by the law. No, of course not. Jesus did all that. Why? So that you could experience love and wholeness and beauty and truth and goodness. The law is a blessing for God's people. And conversely, if you live in rejection of God's law and you say, this doesn't matter for me, you distance yourself from real beauty and real goodness and real love. Because why? God himself is love. The Bible doesn't say God is loving or he's like love. The Bible says what? God is love. Right? God is beauty. He is the essence of beauty. So if you distance yourself from him, you withdraw yourself from the source of all love and beauty and goodness. You're bringing confusion, chaos, chaos. Destruction uh, to your own life, to your own humanity. You're really dehumanizing yourself, and some of you guys have really felt that, and you know what that feels like. I know what that feels like with you. Um, but if we begin to embrace and embody God and this beautiful life that He's called us to, honestly, we find it to be a spiritual detox and a rehab. Um, is it super easy all the time? No. Does it always feel like the right thing to do all the time? Do we want to push against it and kick against it sometimes? Yes, absolutely. But through it, we find health and peace and beauty and love. Um, my friend Brian Sorgenfry, who does RUF at Mississippi State, he, he talks about it like, like an I, like it's an IV. Like we're connected to God. He's the source of life. We're in need. We're on life support from God who is the source of life and love. And when we engage with God through Jesus and follow his law, we are connected to the source of life. We have the IV in us. And God is teaching his people how to live the beautiful life. And look, living a life of beauty and, and goodness and love always starts with loving God. Okay, so what I want to do with this last couple of minutes is look at the first commandment there. You shall have no other gods before me. Because that is the centerpiece of loving God. Um, Jesus says, look, the great commandment is to love God with everything in you. With your heart, with your mind, with your strength. To be single-minded in your devotion to God. And notice a couple things. If you're here tonight and you're like, you say, I'm not a religious person. This isn't really for me. I'm just kind of here because a friend invited me. Or I'm just trying to check this stuff out. Notice that there's an assumption here. There we tend to think that people start out basically irreligious. That like you're sort of this neutral observer and that you might choose to worship a God or follow a religion. But the Bible never assumes that. This passage assumes you are worshiping something. Like you were made to worship and there is something that that is a God to you. And so God doesn't say, hey, you need to worship me. He says, you need to have no other gods before me. So if if you're anybody that's here, everyone that walks on the face of the earth has an impulse to worship. You worship something. There is something that you say, if I have that, I will have love and joy and peace and beauty and goodness in my life and everything will be okay. Um, But this is what that means if you're here and you're a Christian. It means that God assumes that there's a competition for worship in your heart. That he's assuming that from the very... Beginning, um, he, he's assuming that that like again, some of you guys are so surprised that you're Christians that you sin, that like you don't have a full-hearted devotion to God, and God isn't surprised. He's not surprised. And have you admitted to yourself, Christian, and have you admitted to God? Yeah, you know, most of the time, I just really don't love you. Most of the time, there are a thousand other things that I would rather have before you. Like we just sang, "Come, thou fount of every blessing." Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Did you know that that is a Christian cry? There is an assumption from God that there's something competing for your heart, and those competing gods are always something that God has made. God made everything good. And they're to be enjoyed. But it's when those things become ultimate that they come between us and God. In the Hebrew, it actually says, when he says, have no other gods before me, it means don't have any other gods before my face. Like, when you stand before me, don't let there be anything between you and me. My children fight over toys like it's their job. Um, and they scream super loud. Um, also, side note, I took 41 bobby pins out of my one daughter's hair tonight. Just... Um, <laughs> I didn't even know there were forty-one bobby pins in the pack. Um, Anyway, but they fight. And my reaction to my kids fighting over a toy is one to yell at them because that always works. It at least gets their attention. The other is to take the toy away. I'm like, they're fighting. I'll just take it away. Okay, problem solved. My wife is much wiser than me, and my wife understands our children's hearts better than me. And she tells our kids, she says, she says, George Bonnie, this thing is coming between you. It sounds silly. This, this thing is ruining your friendship. It's coming between your relationship. Should this toy, is this toy more important than your relationship? No, because you realize that toy can really aid their friendship. Like if there's a mutual enjoyment of it, if their friendship is, is here and the toy is here, they can use the toy to love each other and to embrace each other and to play together. But it's when that toy becomes, uh, in a sense, more important to them than the other, that it begins to break down their relationship and destroy their relationship. Good things that God has made to, that, we, that we are to use to worship and glorify and enjoy him, when they become ultimate things, they destroy us. They kill us, Um, like grades. Um, Think about grades Uh, when you don't, like someone just told me they've been studying for three days for a test. That means that they have a very vested interest in doing well on said test. Um, At the end of that test, if it doesn't turn out the way you want it to, are you like disappointed and like, man, I really wish I'd done better. I want to study better next time. Or are you undone? Are you, like, pleading to the professor? Like, dehumanizing yourself, lying prostrate on the ground before your professor? <laughs> and then when they don't give you the grade, like, mumbling about them behind their back about they, they can't teach anyway. Um, like, does it undo you or does it just dis- disappoint you? Um, how about the affection of another person? Um, when he doesn't notice you, when you put a lot of work into being noticed, are you like, well, there's other guys? Or do you become unglued, undone? Recall, like Recounting everything you've done in the last day and every possible way that he could have... Like, your hair was just out of place. Um, I was listening again to my friend Brian preach this, and uh, he struck me because I have three daughters. And he said, he was speaking to the ladies in the room, and he said, ladies, do you even remember the first time that you noticed that guys would take notice of you based on how you dress? Or has it become so second nature that you don't even notice it anymore and you're just like, why am I depressed? You can't even notice anymore because you can't have that other person's affection. Um, Is it becoming in front of God's face? How about the approval of friends? How about when your BFFs go to dinner and they don't invite you? Um... Do you go to your room and replay every moment from the past week and try to think of every time where you possibly could have said something that you didn't maneuver absolutely correctly? You, did you stare in anger at their snaps and Instagram posts from spring break, the trip that you were not invited on, um, and burn and seethe inside? Or are you like, that looks like a fun trip. I wish I could have gone. Um, we bow down to the god of other people's opinions, and we don't even know it. And that, my friends, is giving the glory that is due to God to another, and it's, and it's heart blaspheming. Um, and of course, that breaks down your relationship with God. You're disconnecting yourself. You're taking out the IV, and you're putting in something else that can't satisfy you. Cookout milkshakes are wonderful. They're beautiful. But yeah, and, and, Amen. And I'm like lactose intolerant. And I'll still eat one. Um, but if you have them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, of course it's never going to satisfy you. It wasn't intended to. It can't satisfy you. If you're feeling disconnected from God, have you examined your heart for what is competing for your worship? Just my question. And I, I want to leave you with a couple of questions from a guy named David Pallison in a book called How People Change. These are called x-ray questions. I just want to kind of let these questions wash over you. What's on your mind when you wake up in the morning? Um, When you wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, what pops into your your mind? When you miss a green light because you're like staring off into space and the person behind you has to honk and you're like, oh, it's green, and you go, what, what were you like ruminating over what do you talk about with your friends at two in the morning? Um, this is a good one. When, when do you say, if only? Um, what makes you feel rich? What makes you feel, like, important? Whose power do you think would make everything better? If only this person, nationally, in your church, like on campus, had power, then everything would be okay. Um, this one is hard for me. What do you desperately hope will last during your lifetime. Those are all questions that begin to give us a little glimpse into the things that compete for the affection of our hearts. And this is what I want to leave you on as we look toward Good Friday. When we think about Jesus being crucified and him rising from the dead on Sunday. Jesus never had com- competition. Uh, in his heart. For God. Jesus remained completely connected to. And drawing life and beauty from God at every point of his life. Can you imagine that? How many times have you broken the first commandment just today? Jesus was God's man. He was always most concerned with God, and he went to the cross and was pushed away from God so that you could be brought in. And God is calling you now to a life of beauty and love and rest. And peace. There is something so wonderful and life-giving and purifying of saying, God, I want you to be my only. Please direct all the other affections accordingly. He will do it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much um, that you have obeyed perfectly and that you've given us your obedience as a gift. Uh, we, We have not gotten our stuff together. It's beyond us to get our stuff together. But when we look at you, we see you perfect. We see you beautiful. We see you lovely. There's a little bit of our heart that is motivated to want to love you back. And we ask that you would increase that part of us that's there by your grace. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.